from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. Today is Wednesday, the 9th of August. Can you believe how fast the summer has gone? My kids are already back in school. We have an amazing show for you. In a couple of minutes, we'll speak with Jacqueline Goldis. She is a very successful fiction author, has a book out there now that's just killing the bestseller list. But before that, I'm very excited to welcome Elon Shrilovich. He is a very successful entrepreneur, actor, and activist as well. He has started a watch company that is selling watches to people like William Shatner and the like. It is called Egard or Egard Watches. We will get him to clarify that. He is also one of the stars of The Walking Dead that showed, what is it? Not humans. What are those things? Zombies. Zombies. There we go. Thank you. And has had a lot of, been on a lot of other shows as well. He has won some significant awards, including the Patriot Award, which was awarded by Tucker Carlson. Elon, amazing career. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Several black belts and different uh, karate and jujitsu based. How do you have time for everything? How do you get everything <laughs> done? It looks like you're doing 7,000 things. I am doing 7,000 things. Yeah, I'm, um, uh, I, I kind of just allocate time to the things I want to do. I make sure that they gain priority. So uh, less wasted time, more time focused on the things I really am passionate about. All right. How did you get started as an actor? So I, I've always loved acting. I mean, when I was a kid, I was just, uh, I was really kind of out there in terms of my energy and I, I needed a place to put it. So martial arts and acting were two outlets, one of them more physical, one of them more creative, but I would do these little plays and stuff like that. And it kind of developed from there as I got older, I got an agent, ended up uh, getting a scholarship to a school in New York, the New York Conservatory for Dramatic Arts, which is a very cool school. They're a, a Meisner-based school, which is an interesting approach to acting. And, uh, yeah, resonated with me and I just kept doing it. What is that acting approach? Is it, I, I've heard of the people who embody their character a hundred percent. What is this method? So that would be method acting. Meisner is a little bit different. Meisner is living truthfully under imaginary circumstances. It's kind of this whole, there's all these, uh, exercises where you learn to have truly visceral reactions to things. And then they're coming from you. You're not trying to kind of create a blank slate, all those little awkward things about you that have kind of developed over a lifetime of having experiences aren't meant to be erased. They're meant to be brought to the character and that that's what'll make it interesting. So it's just a very honest way to approach acting. And I always liked it. It really did seem to be the, the one that connected with me the most. And what is your character on the walking dead? I'm sorry. I've never seen that show. Uh, Vampires well, and zombies I just kind of scare me. And so, <laughs> yeah, I played a character called Wesley from Hilltop and he's just one of these guys who's, uh, 
was there. I end up getting, should I spoil it? I mean, I'm dead sure. on the show now. So I end up getting uh, stabbed by a poison arrow in my last episode. And I hate when that happens. It, it, it is very annoying. Yeah. And I turned into a half zombie, not a full zombie. And at night, and I ate a bunch of people, and then I got killed. It's a good time. Yes. I don't Typical know Tuesday. This is true or not, but uh, this is true. But a bunch of people came with a bunch of gear one day and filmed someone sinking in our pool. Uh, our pool is incredibly deep and used for a lot of uh, commercials. And we have mermaids who come to our pool for swims and special photography sessions and stuff. And supposedly, one of your characters on Walking Dead sinks to their death in our pool, and they filmed it there. Do you does that ring a bell as to who that would have been? I can't think offhand. No, they, I mean, there's so many deaths on that show. It's <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those shows where, like, every week someone is dying. And we got paid really well for it, so thank you. We appreciate yeah. that. That was nice. And when you're doing this, is it? as horrible as us non-actors see in terms of getting roles and backstabbing each other again people will behave in any way shape or form not everyone but you know a lot of people want to move up in order to get the desired results that they want so if it means changing your personality if it means believing in things you don't believe in yeah, you know, there's one consistent ideology in Hollywood. It's perpetuated throughout all of Hollywood. If you disagree with it, you're going to be outcast. So you're incentivized to believe in these things um, and then be passionate about them, even if you aren't really passionate about it. And I think a lot of people just convince themselves that these things are what matters um, in the hopes that they, again, just move up the ranks. And, you know, I, I was part of this. I got brought into this uh, organization from acting called Nexium, which turned out to be a cult. I left early. I didn't know it was a cult, but uh, a lot of my friends the stayed in it. And in jail now for life, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I know a lot of those guys who were very involved and um, it was, they, they suckered in a lot of actors because again, actors have this kind of identity issue and they would tell you, you know, even if you're, yeah, and there were a lot of famous people in it. And so you'd meet famous people that would kind of make you feel important and they would slowly kind of get you that way. Um, but it's, it's just an inherently unhealthy environment again, because it's so parasitic because people with power determine where your career goes. And if you don't have a strong will, you're going to succumb to what they want in order to move up. And has your career been hurt by your political activities and your political stance? I mean, winning an award from Tucker Carlson is bad in Hollywood, isn't it? terrible yeah and it has affected my career for sure um you know i sent my manager this is just this year i sent my manager an email saying hey i'd love to audition for projects coming out of daily wire angel studios there's this whole world out there of conservative films from these smaller up-and-coming studios and you know angel studios is not making small projects anymore so the chosen is a huge show um you know all the projects they're putting out are doing very well i was like uh i think this is an area I really want to explore. And uh, they wrote me back an email saying, Hey, we don't agree with your politics. If you're going to go down this road, find a new manager. And then two months later, they dropped me. Hey, look, they could have dropped me for any reason. You know what I mean? They can't, I can't right. blame it on that entirely, but coincidentally I got that email. Then I got dropped a couple months later. Um, so I don't think it helps having the views I have in Hollywood. 
And what would you say those views are? Describe the views that have gotten you in trouble. You know, it's interesting because I don't think my views are historically conservative or liberal. They're just American, which is, it's so odd to me that growing up, I didn't have to hyper identify with a political party. And nowadays I do, but it's almost like I'm at this point, you know, standing up for law enforcement, just humanizing them when they're so under attack is considered a far right wing extremist point of view, the notion that we need police in society and that they do, in fact, sacrifice things for us. I'm not saying they're all perfect. They're human beings. That position makes you a far right wing extremist saying that you believe in true freedom of of speech. Something I feel very passionately about. You have the right to offend will always supersede the right to not be offended, in my view. And apparently that's something that makes you nowadays uh, an extremist. Uh, Believing that biological women who have historically fought for protections that are now being erased, their entire identity is being erased to say that biological men should not go into prison with women just because they identify as women, that they should not go into women's shelters, that they should not compete against women in sports. These are considered extremist views and, you know, transphobic views. Um, And no one's even willing to have a conversation with me about these issues. But the fact that I believe that, you know, strong masculinity, supporting men, putting positive, uh, uh, positive examples of fathers, of, of men out there who make sacrifices and acknowledging that they make sacrifices. That's considered an extremist view nowadays. So anything I put out, which, you know, being proud of this country, saying I believe it's a great country. My mother escaped Iraq. My father's uh, family died in the Holocaust. Uh, he's Eastern European. He's the only one left in his entire family. Like with our last name, it's pretty much our lineage. And I, I'm the bad guy for that. This country, which pretty much saved my parents' lives, is uh, is a terrible. You know that they want to say it's a terrible place, and I say no. America is a beautiful place. So is a terrible thing to say that apparently standing up for this country. So th- there's just a lot of different viewpoints that I have, which I think are just historically American viewpoints, which have been so undermined and attacked via progressivism, unfortunately, that, uh, you know, I don't even think most historical liberals agree with the positions that they take now. So it is what it is, but uh, I'm not going to silence myself or censor myself just in the hopes of having a better career. I would love to see John Kennedy or Truman or somebody like that come back and be dropped into the modern Democratic Party. And see how they respond to that. Uh, see how they respond to the changes that have gone on there. It seems like that a lot of the political parties have uh, given up on things that they fought for for years, especially freedom of speech. Yeah, you know, we have. Uh, I, I went out and I shot a documentary, and I'm hoping it. Uh, we're in talks right now to distribute it. It's a really good documentary. We have some great people in it. Jordan Peterson, uh, uh, Tom McDonald's is an interesting guy. We have Roseanne Barr in it. We also have people from the left, like Jimmy Dore, D. Snyder from Twisted Sister. There's just some really interesting interviews there. It's about cancel culture and, and something called mass psychosis or psychogenic epidemic. And I ran social demonstrations or social experiments to see if people would be able to harm other people based on social pressure. Uh, and based on their value systems. And it, it, the results are really troubling. It just shows that the American people are extremely polarized and that when we're presented with a view that we disagree with, if there's social pressure to destroy that person's life, that we'll jump on board and make sure it happens. And we'll feel virtuous about it. We'll feel like we're doing something great. It's a very dangerous society when you allow 
a small percentage of the population to dictate major decisions that are being made. And that's kind of what's happened. You have these very vocal people in society who are putting tremendous social pressure on everyone, and they represent a very small percentage of the population. But because we all self-censor and we all want to be agreeable and we don't want to offend, what happens is that two to five percent becomes the vocal majority. And when something is a vocal majority, it's the perceived majority. And uh, not vocally, it's perceived majority in terms of population representation, which is kind of an interesting phenomenon. And then they have immense power, even though they are just a very small percentage of the population. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And I guess that makes me crazy too. But, (laughs) you know, I've traveled all over the world and America is got some huge problems, but the rest of the world does too. And it seems to me like we've solved the problems in some cases better than some of the other countries that we are compared to. And, you know, they talk about poverty in the United States. I don't really know that, uh, that you can talk about that until you've been to the favelas in Brazil. Or yeah, the slums in Egypt. Well, there's there's been analysis of this where you know the poorest people in the United States still live better than the majority of the world, uh, and people will try and draw other forms of comparisons, such as look, is is it good to be extremely poor in the United States? No, but it is better than being extremely poor in other countries or even average in other countries. You know, like I said, my mother's from Iraq. The quality of life in Iraq has not been great for quite some time. Um, beyond that though, I think people don't realize that we, at least as a country strive to improve and we strive to have something which is very important, which is income mobility. Uh, everyone believes that they are entitled to something nowadays, not that they have to work for it. And that's a major issue, not just in the United States, but in secular society, uh, Europe, especially where they've just taken this kind of laxy daisy attitude to everything and say, well, you know, I don't need to work more than the bare minimum. I don't need to uh, strive to be better. And when you create cultures like that, you see what happens. So those countries fall apart. And, um, it's a mentality that kind of reminds me of a lot of things that are going on of like the age of debauchery that took place, you know, which led to the collapse of, uh, of Rome and, uh, right. The age of debauchery collapse of Rome. Am I right? My brain is. And, uh, and, my brain just kind of froze there for a second. And essentially what you see is societies that become entitled to comfortable, start doing away with, they become philosophical in nature, not reality based in nature. Uh, and they're, they end up decaying gender roles. Uh, they become obsessed with the material obsessed with whatever pleasures the material world can give you. They stop having any form of drive and they fall apart. And we're on that trend. We're on that path. Secular society. It's a byproduct of moral relativism, by the way, in my opinion. If you, if you do away with the concept of God in a society, which has happened in a very effective way, and I'm not saying everyone has to believe in God, but you do need to have something greater than the material. Otherwise, you can't have any standard for any absolute ethic. An absolute ethic has to exist because there is some form of absolute truth in the universe. Otherwise, nothing is absolutely true, and therefore nothing is absolutely right or wrong. And you end up down this path toward nihilism and extreme moral relativism, which is why you see all these people have, again, identity issues. They have no way to connect to anything that lets them feel special, lets them feel like they have value, and so they seek it out in the material world, which is 
drug use, which is I'm going to identify as trans. And now all of a sudden I'm special. And now all of a sudden I have value. All the identity politics that has taken place are all byproducts of extreme moral relativism. It's why we're one of the only countries in the world where people will fake hate crimes consistently or fake being abducted or fake whatever. You just saw a story which just took place of the girl who uh, it appears lied about being abducted. And in created this whole, Yeah, and they created this whole story of, uh, you know, women of color are taken less seriously when they're abducted. And it's like, you have people in society, literally, Jesse Smollett. This is a guy who's extremely successful, extremely rich, uh, famous. He's on a TV show. He's living the dream, but he's a person of color. And because those things are all looked down upon, success is looked down upon in our society. He goes, no, I'm going to fake a hate crime on myself to get value. We have inverted value systems completely to the point where success, which is something that should be admired, is looked down upon. And being a victim, which is something that people should fight out of is something society should tell you you are not a victim fight be better we do the opposite we praise that and there's no way a society can function with with inverted value systems it's the same thing for safety over courage you know a real society that's going to flourish will place one of the highest virtues as courage and we're not only doing away with courage we're inverting it we're saying no 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 and we saw this during covid you need to be safe you need to keep every single person in the entire country safe and if you want to put courage above safety, then you're actually a terrible, terrible person. You are a threat to society and the greater good, and we're going to have to come after you. And again, that's an inverted virtue. Societies will collapse when you do these things. Let's talk about your watch company. I am on the website. It's, uh, will you pronounce it so I get it correctly? Egard? Egard. 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 Yeah. Damn, these things are beautiful and so cool looking. I don't own a watch at all. Uh, I'm just not a jewelry person. I'm married, but I don't even wear a, a wedding ring. I just don't do that. And I want one of these watches. I mean, I would, <laughs> these make awesome. me want to wear a watch and to show it off. They're the coolest things I've ever seen. Why'd you start a watch company? Uh, how did that come about and the design? How'd you get so good at design? Talk about so it. So it's interesting. Yeah. So I have a big design background. I, I went to school for it and I went through a really rough period of my life where um, I went through some health issues and my dad was there for it all. He was willing to fly anywhere to, to help me out. You know, I didn't live uh, near my dad at the time and he just came and he's like, I'll stay with you as long as you need. And this happened over uh, quite a few years where, you know, it's not, I have a chronic condition. And so he has helped me tremendously, like tremendous. I wouldn't be here today without my father. And, um, and it was just his birthday. So happy birthday to my dad. And, uh, one of the greatest guys I know, the greatest person I know, and I wanted to find a way to thank him. And I had, I was working in a studio, uh, doing something called previs, which is a form of, uh, you pretty much make movies before they're made in CG. So like if you're going to shoot a Marvel movie to save money, we do the whole movie on computer beforehand so that, you know, the shots you're going into, you know, a camera, you know, the angles, you know, how it's going to move everything, how the actor's going to go through a scene. It just saves you shooting extra footage in real life, which is far more expensive. And, uh, so I had the design background to design a watch for him. It was his 65th birthday coming up. And at the time, and so we, I ended up making it. He ended up loving it. It was on forums and his friends liked it. And 
we kind of decided to just launch it into a business after that. I launched it into this business on a small scale. People liked it. Then oddly enough, I had some friends who were actors and William Shatner really liked one of my designs. I wasn't friends with him, but he had seen it posted online and made a comment. And so I reached out and said, Hey, would you want to collaborate on a watch? And uh, we did. And it did very, very well. He's a really good guy. He just really, you know, he's one of those people who doesn't care about anything other than if you're a good dude and you want to make a good project with him. And we're doing another one now, uh, probably about eight years later. Um, but that's how the company really kind of launched. And we've just been continuing since then. Interesting. And the first watch, which one is it still one of the ones listed? So you have the shade V2 on there. The original watch I made for my dad was the shade original shade. It wasn't even the shade V1. It was just a shade. Um, so that was the original design I made for my dad. It was a little bulkier. Uh, the dial was a little bit deeper and it had more water resistance, which I, you know, in retrospect, a lot of people didn't want, they didn't want that thicker case and all that because it's more of a dress looking watch. Uh, but I figured I was making one watch for my dad. So I'd make it all purpose and make sure it just kind of lasted with whatever he did in life. So, um, that that's the original design the shade it's one of my favorites till today right it's a uh, beautiful very elegant a little simpler than some of the others that you've yeah. come up with but uh looks gorgeous so how do you get one watch made so you have to source the parts. It, it was different back then. I had prototyping. Uh, you know, we had 3D prototypes back then in the studio and everything. So I was just using the stuff there. But nowadays, it's even more streamlined. If someone wanted to get a watch made, there's, you know, watch assembly houses they could go to. I just sourced components. Like most watches are using standardized movements. In other words, you're not going out and building a watch movement for an automatic watch. You're probably getting it from Miota, Salida. At the time, Edda was far more accessible. They're a Swiss company, just like Salida, but now they're very, very hard to get movements from. Seiko makes movements. Um, so that original one used something called a Miota 8N24 was the movement I believe I used, or A2S7. I can't remember which move, which movement is it. It's the 8N24 movement. It's the fully skeletonized one. Um, and that's what we use. It's this skeletonized Miota movement. Um, and by skeletonized, I don't mean there's a skeleton on it. I mean that it's an automatic watch. It winds off the movement of your wrist and there's pieces carved out kind of to, to show through the movement and really showcase the movement. And, uh, so that's how I kind of went about it. And then when you started working with Shatner, how did it become full scale and become a real business? Well, I saw an opportunity back then. This is before people were using Indiegogo and Kickstarter as pre-selling platforms. They were using it to raise money. And I said, no, this is a great platform to kind of pre-sell a product. The nice thing about pre-selling a product is number one, you get market feedback. So I could see right away what people liked and didn't like. I knew which inventory to make more of because I made four colors of the watch and I was able to have customers be involved in the production of it. So I thought that this was a tremendous way to take advantage of the platform and be able to then self-fund it beforehand and not worry about making, you know, 5,000 watches and then worrying if they sell or not here, I would know right away. Do people like it? Do they not like it? What could I change? And it did very well. Uh, so we did that pre-sale and then we just kind of continued on from there. All right. And how do you go about marketing it today? 
we do everything. We do Facebook, uh, Instagram, YouTube, uh, literally anywhere that email marketing. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's sad because of our vocal stances. I don't know if you saw our most recent video erased where we did a video in support of women in sports, biological women in sports. We got some backlash and some lawyers reached out to us saying, Hey, you have to remove these celebrities from your website. They don't consent to be on your website anymore. And I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm not going to sit here and have a battle with you. If they're in that much disagreement over an ad that says, you know, you should protect women in sports. Then we're obviously so far apart that it's not good that they represent the brand at that point anyway. So I removed them. Uh, but that used to be a part of our advertising approach. And so now I look for these cool collaborations. Um, I definitely do believe, I know, you know, a lot of information has come out in recent years, but we did for sure get shadow banned on YouTube and some other platforms. And that's frustrating because it obviously makes it harder to promote your business. But again, these are just byproducts of modern day society. The question is how much do you want to allow it to affect you or find alternative means to advertise, which is, there's a, a ton of, you know, conservative podcasts. There's a ton of people out there who believe in what we believe and will support us and understand that we do kind of lose out on those other opportunities. And so they go the extra mile to make sure that we can still stay in business and do well. And I, so I'm super appreciative to customers because they've, they've really made the difference and allowed me to put out these ads one after the other and to support the things that we do. So uh, that's a big part of it. It's just, there's, there's people out there nowadays who've kind of taken note of the companies they want to support and they've, they've gone out of their way to support us. Very cool. I heard, I don't remember which one it was that one of the major acting awards got rid of the male and female adjectives. And now they're just going to have best actor awards or both yeah, sex, all sexes. Yeah, it seems to me that the women are going to get shortchanged there. Are, am I the only person who, I mean, you and I are, how can women not be fighting this? Well, it's always shocking to me that women aren't on mass scale, more upset about what's going on, or they're just scared to speak up because they're going to be targeted, lose their job or be ostracized for, you know, the, the Miss Netherlands, who is a, a, a trans female. So a biological male who just won. It's interesting to me when I see all the women standing up on stage clapping and as if they're happy about it, because deep down, I know they're not, their opportunity was taken away from them. Just no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to be vocal about it. Very few people, uh, you know, and it's just this weird, again, it's this weird untruth that has permeated society. I can have empathy for someone who has gender dysphoria, but we're, we're no longer there. We're not saying you have gender dysphoria. We're saying you are, in fact, the thing that you believe you are and that everyone has to accept it. Everyone has to change their perception of reality to accommodate you. That's no longer an, having empathy. That's engaging in someone's delusion. Uh, you know, if I were to come out and say, and this is where it's really scary, because imagine someone comes out, and I don't think we're far away from this, a grown male in his 50s and says, well, I'm an 11-year-old. If, 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 if anything, age is far more of a sliding scale and subjective than the binary of biological sex, which we're denying. So it's not so far-fetched to believe that people will start denying age, and then you're in for a whole world of problems. And I think that's honestly where the end game is. It's very weird to me that we're allowing these things to take such a grip as opposed to just saying, look, I can have empathy for you. I can use your pronouns, but you're not, you're not going to compete against women. You're not going to go to a women's prison. You're not going to go to a shelter for women. 
You know what I mean? Like those are not unreasonable positions, but to say that nowadays makes you an unreasonable individual in, in their eyes. You have to accept their entire premise, which is that they are not a trans woman. They are a woman period and story. That's a dangerous position to accept in my opinion. Well, I love looking at the verbal gymnastics that people try to do to justify and to explain and coming up with, you know, phrases like people that can give birth. Yeah. Birthing people. Yes. Uh, or even worse, the people who menstruate, you mm-hmm. know, uh, I saw that out recently. I don't think people want to be called a menstruator. You know, I mean, that's just, just <laughs> well, weird. I'll tell you this. I think that it's sadly by design. I used to think it was just a kind of happenstance of moral relativism that you end up down this path. Like I discussed earlier, but there's so much orchestrated by these groups like BlackRock and Vanguard and what they fund and what ideologies they push. And these are destructive ideologies that are obviously destructive. Again, they're not like potentially destructive. They're obviously destructive, both to the people who embrace them and the people against them as society as a whole. Because when you take little kids and you give them hormone blockers at 11 years old, and then you modify their body through extreme surgeries by the time they're 14, which is where we're headed, you know, you're, you're hurting that child. You're, you're not just hurting society as a whole. You're hurting that individual child. That is what your actions are causing. It destroys the very people you claim to help. It's intentionally destructive. And I think it is honestly on some level to weaken us. We're a very strong country. The historically, at least the, the American spirit is a spirit that's very hard to break. And the only way to defeat us would be to destroy us from within to, to break what we stand for, because you can't break America by fighting it. You can break America by taking away what it is. And I really see that's what's happening. And again, I think it's by design because there is no explanation to the things we now accept. There are these new normals constantly being set every two to three years now where we have to accept something that is more irrational and more crazy than what was presented to us just six months ago, a year ago. And if, if you accept it, then the next time they fight for something, they're fighting for something more extreme. You'll only be fighting back to that already irrational position that you accepted six months ago. So we've allowed this to escalate to a point where we're so far removed from reality that how do we even get back to a starting point? That's why I tell people, don't give an inch. Because if the people you're talking to, if I'm, if I'm in a negotiation with you and your position is to take everything from me and that's your end goal and you will never agree to less, why am I giving you anything at all? Why am I being agreeable? Why am I apologizing? Why am I trying to negotiate? There is no negotiation. If you want to move into my house, take everything I own. Let's just say this as a premise. And I'm sitting here and I go, okay, I'll give you a bedroom right? Just take a bedroom from me. I'm a nice guy. Then within six months, you will own my home. You'll start taking another bedroom. You'll take the bathroom. You'll take the kitchen. And before I know it, I'm out on the street. And that's literally what we're allowing to happen to our own country. If you give a mouse a cookie, do you know that? <laughs> <Exactly. book? laughs> is, is it the one, um, is it the one where he gets so comfortable? Yes, it's, uh, what's the name of the book? I've read this book. Uh, you give a mouse a cookie, I think, is the name of it. That's the name of it? And it's just like these years of him getting a cookie and he stops striving. I remember this book. Well, then, I read then it, eventually uh, he wants a glass of milk, and then eventually he ends up taking over the whole world, or the whole uh, house or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, a children's book 
by Laura Numeroff. Um, anyway. I, I was thinking of another book that has a very similar premise where this mouse, there's like these two mice and he goes out to explore the world or something like that. And he gets a cookie and then he just starts expecting the cookie and he gets too comfortable. And, and like, I uh, can't remember the name of the book, but I read it a few years ago. Elon, what a career. Absolutely fascinating. What are you, what are your dreams now? What do you want to do in the next 10 years? What are your goals? The honest truth. I mean, I have, I have like my, my own journey with some, some personal stuff. Like I really want to go down the path of, uh, it's going to sound weird, but I, I definitely want to explore my faith more. And, uh, on a personal level, that's kind of what I want to dive into and, and feel more comfortable in that. And then on a business level, I just kind of want to affect as much change as possible. I don't care what platform it is. So hopefully my company keeps growing and I can do these ads and continue to do these ads. Hopefully I can be on as many podcasts as possible. Uh, but I do believe that that's the thing I'm most passionate about. Just talking about these subjects and hopefully having conversations. It's, it's so hard to get people to have conversations about this who, who disagree. Um, but I'm going to keep trying. That's, that's really where I see myself in 10 years. Hopefully having some kind of huge podcast in a dream world where I'm having these conversations with, with people I really, really like. And even people I dislike who disagree with me and hate me and I won't dislike them, but you know, I, I've been in a lot of these situations where, uh, I've sadly lost friends and, uh, lost relationships because they just can't accept the way I see the world. So just do more of it. Elon, do you have a new fan? I am super impressed. I want to watch. And I appreciate you being on the show. How do we find out more about you? Follow you online, buy some stuff. Everything's on eggardwatches.com. So E G A R D watches.com. And all our ads are on there. We have a little section called our films. I'm going to be putting up uh, the eggard podcast on the website. And so I'll just be using it as the main platform for fantastic. Elon, great stuff. I really appreciate you being with us and I'm super impressed. Great story. Thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. And we'll be right back. We are back in again. Thank you so very much for being with us. I hope you enjoyed Elon. I'm very impressed with him and I'm very excited to welcome another great guest. This is an interesting show. I think that our next guest is going to match up really well with the conversation we had with Elon. Please welcome Jacqueline Goldis to the show. She is an author, has just released her second book, which has some 500 reviews on that Amazon place. It's called The Chateau, a novel, and it is five-star rated. Jacqueline had a really interesting history. She was living the corporate life, helping people do that law thing. And she was in estate planning and packed it all in, sold all of her stuff, put everything in a backpack and has been traveling for over a couple of years now, living where she wants to and writing full time as a profession. And obviously it's doing well. You don't get 500 reviews unless the book has sold a bunch. Jacqueline, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you so much, Jim. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. So tell us about ditching the corporate life. Everyone dreams of it. Did you yell F you as you st stormed out the door? <laughs> 
Well, I feel like it wasn't quite that dramatic. Um, I actually, I have to say I worked with great people and I liked what I did, just how I stayed for seven and a half years. But really my passion's always been writing and I've always felt like I wanted to give it a full-time go writing novels. So, um, so yeah, I decided to leave. All right. Was it a hard decision? Did people fight you? Did your parents tell you that you were crazy? And <laughs> I think, I think a lot of people thought I was crazy. Um, but I also had a lot of support from the people closest to me because ever since I was my earliest memory, I've been wanting to be an author. So I think those who knew me the best knew that this, I really had to give it a chance. And yeah, I think, I think the work, the people I worked with supported me. Um, I'm sure privately some or all of them thought I was crazy. And, you know, it was a hard decision because I was leaving a very secure job. I would have gone up for a partnership that year. Um, I was making really good money and, um, and I didn't hate it. So yeah, it was a hard decision. Almost if I had hated it and worked with awful people, it would have made it easier, but because I didn't, um, it did make it harder. Like, yeah, but I, I, I feel about any of those kinds of, about my job and about any kind of corporate path is like, you're, you think almost you can never go back if you leave it, you know, you're making this huge decision, which it is, but I do feel like, you know, life has a lot of twists and turns and I kind of felt like if I had to, I would go back and it would be okay. It's really unfair that they're not being mean to help drive you away. <laughs> you know, they should have been really jerky. Totally. Making it a lot easier. Totally. So. Yeah, it would have been easier. <laughs> and I don't mean to be asking questions that are none of our business, but that's what we do here. Uh, are you sure. able to support yourself now or are you still, are yeah. you living off the past income or are you able to? I am able to support myself now. Okay. Yeah. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. All right. So tell us about the first book uh, and not really the plot of it so much, but just the writing of it and getting it published and getting it read and getting a hundred reviews for that book. Talk to us about that process and tell us a little bit yeah. about it. We'll dive deep into the Chateau in a minute. Yeah, sure. The first book is historical women's fiction. It has a world war two component it's set partially on the Greek Island of Corfu. And that was the first book I wrote when I left my job to travel, but it was not the first book I wrote in life. Um, I wrote three novels before that, none of which I got an agent for and all of which I'm super happy had not seen the light of day. And they were great practice novels. And at the time I believed in each one of them so much, but um, they were not meant to be published. And I'm glad that it happened the way it happened. But anyway, for my first novel that was published, um, the journey was long, longer than I expected because I had writing under my belt and I left my job and I was like, now it's going to happen. It's going to happen really quickly. And I wrote the book fairly quickly when I first left, which was seven years ago now at this point. Um, and, and then I was like, okay, now I'm going to get an agent. And it did not happen like that. And I revised it and revised it and went to work more workshops and had hired editors. And, and finally it was in a place where, I felt good about it. And, um, actually I remember I had a moment that was very like, uh, memorable and it sticks out to me because I was getting really dejected and like, this isn't working. This, this isn't happening. I left my job to do this. And I had this moment with myself of, okay, it might not happen. I might, who knows? I might never get an agent or get a publisher. Um, but I had this moment in myself, like, 
I love writing. I love doing this. I'm going to do it forever. I'm going to keep trying. And if I have to go back and get another job, I will, but I'm just never giving up. And then I ended up connecting with my agent and signing with her two weeks later. So, um, that was, that was five years ago. And since then I've written a lot more books. Um, but and what the about one that came out is the Chateau. Why do you think the agent finally, or that part of the story worked out? Uh, was it karma or did you have your ducks in a row now? Or was it the fact that you committed and were all in and ready to burn the ships? And that I think, was noticeable? I mean, I mean, you know, I believe in, um, manifesting and I'm pretty spiritual. So I do think that that, yeah, letting go kind of surrendering it a little bit at that point, being less attached to it helped get my agent. Sure. But I also believe that this book, my first one that was published really was like a masterclass for me and how to write a novel. And I really learned through it, um, how to write a good book in a way that none of the books I've written since I've struggled, like I did with that one. And so that book really taught me so much and the journey was very useful. Tell us some of those lessons. What did it teach you? How do you write a good novel? <laughs> um, well, it taught me, I, I would say a lot about characters because I think plotting is usually my strength. And I think make creating characters who live in gray and aren't black and white um, is really what readers gravitate towards. And I think, um, I think in that period also, because I'd left my job and I was, really growing a lot personally. I think all that lent itself into your, my characters because I, I really kind of believe you can only know your characters as much as you know yourself. And in that process, I learned a lot about myself too. So I guess, yeah, that was a lot of the lessons. But also, you know, in being ruthless about getting rid of stuff, because I probably wrote 300,000 words to get to that and 100,000 word book. And so I think it was like a lot of trial and error and figuring out what didn't work and what I could cut. And yeah, I think a lot about good writing is being able to ruthlessly edit yourself and be edited. All right. Well, I just have to throw this comment in Jacqueline. I wrote a book for McGraw Hill. And the editing process they said was going to take two or three months and whatever. And they sent me the manuscript edited and they said, okay, let's start fighting over it now. And I was like, I I accept it as is. I'm not even going to look at it. You, you, you (laughs) hired this guy and pay him a ton of money to make editing, you know, to make the book 2% better. I accept, I'm not going to fight it. You know, you win, you're better, you know, and they were blown away by that strategy and that philosophy that people fight the editor. Why fight the editor? What are are your thoughts on silliness? I mean, that's, I guess my way is different, but I mean, I, but I also, I mean, I would say that I take 99% of my editor's suggestions because they're brilliant. And I, I'm like, yes, 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 that. And I, I wouldn't say we fight over anything. I would say like something I disagree with, I'm going to like talk to her about it and get more like insight into why she was making this, you know, the decision she made. And sometimes I come around and sometimes she comes around, but it's a conversation. But I, I do, I'm, I'm with you in that I think the majority, the vast majority of the edits that come in are excellent. And I, definitely want to accept them and they make my book so much better 
Yeah, for me, I'm just, I accept it as is. So, all right. Why do we have to have an agent? Why is that important? Can't you do it without it? Well, you can. I think it goes to whether you want to, like what you want your journey to be. Do you want to self-publish? Do you want to go to a hybrid publisher? I, I think I always knew I wanted to be a traditional publisher. I wanted the big five. And really to get to the big five, you need an agent. So, All right. Tell us about The Chateau, a novel. The Chateau is my debut in the suspense category. So it's about a dream girl's trip to a luxurious chateau in Provence that devolves into a deadly nightmare of secrets and murder. And it's about um, four girlfriends who studied abroad together 20 years before. And they used to visit one of the the girlfriend's grandmothers on the weekends. And they cultivated this bond with her. And so the grandmother invites them kind of suddenly back to the chateau and then the grandmother is found brutally murdered. So the book Ooh. progresses from there and who did it. And yes. Sounds like an Agatha Christie you pack uh, a boat or a building with a whole bunch of people. And then someone dies. Yeah. And then everyone is a suspect, right? Yes. I mean, I adore Agatha Christie. And so any comparisons I take with gratitude and yes it is it is christy like in that respect and is it shocking who the killer is or is it kind of obvious in retrospect i definitely um i don't think it's obvious i mean you know i'm sure some readers will disagree with you i think everyone has the perspective and thriller readers are very savvy and some of them can suss out um, you know, the killer, but it is funny because the, the last chapter and no spoilers is I think very shocking. And I didn't know what was going to happen to the last in the last chapter until I had finished the book. And so, you know, most people are shocked by it, but there's a few readers who have said, of course they knew what was coming, which I find funny because it's like, I didn't even know it was coming until I finished it. So, um, so anyway, so, <sighs> have just under 500 reviews, which puts it in the top 1% of books on that Amazon thing. How'd you get so many reviews? Another way of asking that is how did you market the book and get out there and get it sold by enough people to write 500 reviews? What's your marketing look like? I think the answer to that, honestly, is part of the the question of like why I want an agent. Because I think when you go to a, a big five publisher and they're putting a lot behind you and you have this whole team and all this muscle behind you, um, it can give your book so much momentum and so much more momentum than I would be able to create on my own. And so I think the answer is I have an incredible team. I feel so lucky. I, I'm working with amazing, talented, smart people. And yeah, there's huge marketing muscle behind it. And of course I am part of it. I'm doing my part, but I, I don't feel like I'm leading it and I don't feel like I would be able to do it on my own. So I think that's the answer. Who, who published this? Was it Atria? Simon and Schuster. Yeah. Atria. Exactly. Emily Bessler books. Okay. Simon and Schuster. Interesting. And has that been a positive experience working with them or a negative? How would you rate working with Simon and Schuster? Cause I give McGraw Hill a F minus 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 most oh, unpleasant wow. people on earth. Uh, wow. Working with McGraw Hill. 
Well, honestly, I mean, and I, I say this like very genuinely, I give like my experience in a plus has just been fantastic. Like really, I feel I'm so jealous, very, very blessed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I feel very lucky. Um, and it felt like from the beginning, from the first, talk with my editor and from the beginning of the deal it just felt like wow this is like so amazing and it's really continued it's actually only exceeded my expectations like really so what is your writing process how do you actually sit down so you're living right now in a gorgeous city you can divulge if you want to that has a beach you go to the beach you get your mai tai out (laughs) have a little whatever and then you start writing no. Yes. What's it look like? <laughs> well, yes, I live in Tel Aviv. I live steps from the Mediterranean, which is really lovely. I love, I love where I live. Um, I don't drink, but I do drink a lot of coffee. Um, so I would say I'm with my iced Americano at a cafe, perhaps on the beach, perhaps just around the city. Um, and when I start with a, a new book, which I'm, which is the space I'm in now, um, planning a new book. I'm a lot with my notebooks and pens, less with my computer. And really I feel like how I decide what I'm going to write next is like, what am I curious about? What feels fun to me? A lot of my, my books, now my thrillers, um, revolve around exotic locations because I live abroad. I live internationally. I really love to travel. I love to armchair travel as a reader. So the Chateau is set in Provence. My book coming out next year is set in Italy. And um, yeah, so I pick, so I start with a setting that feels exciting to me. And then um, I really just follow the threads of things I'm curious in. It could be careers. It could be um, something true crimey that drew me. Um, yeah. So it really varies and I kind of just follow threads. Like I, I keep, and I keep seeing what I'm interested in. And sometimes something comes to me of like, yes, that's in the book. And I don't really know why and I don't know where it's going to go, but I know that I start to see this book materialize. So that's kind of my process about how I plan it. And are you pen on paper or do you type or, or do you dictate? How do you actually get the words on that paper stuff? When I'm writing the book, I'm on my computer. I'm on my laptop, for sure. Um, Sometimes, if I have a scene that I've kind of been dreading and putting off, I'll just go to a cafe with a notebook and write the scene. But, like, 95% of the time, I'm on my laptop um, writing. But the planning phase, when I'm, like, working things out with characters and plot, which is, for me, a big part of the process. It usually takes, like, four months. Then I'm more of my notebook. um, And I'm reading a lot. I'm doing a lot of research. My books usually require a lot of research. All right. And what's next? What's the, you said a book comes out next year in Italy. What's it about? Yeah. So it's called the main character and it is another locked room murder mystery thriller. And it's set on the Orient express on a modern Orient express train. That's been refurbished to represent like its predecessors from you know, the 1920s and it's a trip down the Western coast of Italy. And, um, it's about a best-selling author who sends her latest employee on an all expenses paid trip. And then the employee walks on the train and she's shocked when she sees her brother and her ex fiance and her best friend. And the author has sent them on this very twisty trip. And as the, as they kind of romp around Italy, they begin to, 
shift into the author's motives and one of them does not make it out of, off the train alive. So it's another murder mystery. Well, it's interesting to do an Orient Express book when Agatha, like I yes. think her best-selling book was Murder on the Orient Express. And of course, two movies yes. have been made and uh, one of the best ones, best books in that genre. You're competing yes, with I that. agree. Why? Why do I, that? Why compete with Agatha? Like, I mean, you're setting I, yourself up for the comparisons. Yeah, there's. I'm sure the I am setting myself up for the comparison, but they, it's such a different book. Um, really, that's where the comparison ends. I think. I think it's like very much my modern take on a murder on a train. Um, and so I, I don't think that there's like more comparisons beyond that. And I think I've always loved that book and I love the idea of a train mystery. It's such like a great locked room, you know, stifling, you're with all these people, you can't get out. Um, so, so I, I love that and I've updated it. It's not, they're not on a, they're on an actual, um, three day journey that stops in different picturesque places like Cinque Terre and Rome. And, um, so they get off the train and they go explore it's, it's a bit different. Well, it sounds great. I would love to read that one right <laughs> up my alley. And so, you know what you need? You need one of the characters should be reading Agatha Christie murder on the Orient Express <laughs> since they're on the Orient Express. <laughs> there's a good, there's a good Christie reference in the book. Um, for sure. You can't, you can't write a train, a murder mystery on the Orient Express without a Christie reference. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I agree with that. So, <laughs> absolutely fascinating and congratulations how do we find out more about you follow you online and get copies of your books thank you so much well the books are available everywhere books are sold um i'm on instagram at jacqueline goldis that's probably the best place to find me and you can also check out my website jacquelinegoldis.com fantastic congratulations i hope the books sell well we'd love to have you back and hear more about them Thank you so much. I would love that. Thanks so much. And we're out of time for today, but thank you for being with us. Hope you enjoyed two great guests. And we'll be back tomorrow with another great school for Startups Radio. Have a great day, everyone. Take care. Bye now.